Hi, and welcome to The Horn, a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Alan Boswell. This is our last episode before we go on our mid-year break, and we will be checking in with some of my colleagues about some important developments we wanted to make sure to touch on before we go. First, we are speaking with William Davison, who has an update on the war in northern Ethiopia and on the tentative moves finally towards peace talks. Next, we'll turn to Nelika Vanderwall to talk about Kenya's recent efforts to mediate and intervene in the Democratic Republic of Congo and how that changes the regional picture. Lastly, my colleague Nazanin Moshiri will give us an update on the devastating drought and food crisis hitting much of the Horn region and what we're most watching out for amid the climate catastrophes over the next few months. Thanks for joining us. William, we will start with you. Thanks very much for having me, Alan. So we have some good news, potentially good news, to talk about in Ethiopia, which is a which is a uh, nice change for us. So the truce between Addis Ababa and Mekele that has deepened, and the parties look like uh, they are heading to peace talks, or at least uh, preparing to do so. So... Of course, I wanted to bring you on to discuss that. First of all, what do we know about uh, the prospects for peace talks? Well, we know that both sides, meaning the, the federal government and Tigray's government, Tigray's leadership, have both publicly committed to talks. And this has been coming sort of for a few months now, but it's sort of there were sort of announcements by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed in Parliament in the middle of last month, and, and then sort of the federal government announced the negotiating committee and, and sort of Tigray's government has made positive um, noises in response. So so we know that they've, they've both publicly committed to it. Um, it looks likely that they will occur in in Kenya, but we're not too sure of the timing. Obviously, we've got an election coming up in, in Kenya. And also there's a certain amount of, was well, a certain lack of clarity over the role of the African Union um, envoy, President Opasanjo and, and Kenya's government and, and the other actors. There's plenty of details to be worked out, but we do have those public commitments to hold some form of negotiations between the two parties. Mm. And first of all, why now? Obviously, we've been arguing throughout this war, and you've been arguing that, you know, the logic was such that neither side was going to win, and it was going to have to require peace negotiations and a settlement at some point. But why are we possibly, hopefully, hitting that stage at this point? Uh, for, an, for a number of, of reasons, I think the, the probably the primary one is sort of built into your question there. Um, you know, obviously, the beginning of the of the war uh, the ambition of the federal government was to sort of install a, a new ruling party essentially and a new, new government in in Tigray at the expense of the Tigray People's Liberation Front the TPLF um, and they had some success initially in terms of taking over Tigray's administration but then the Tigrayans fought back and they made an effort at regime change in Addis but fell short so you got to this stage after you know some brutal confrontations where they've, they've taken massive chunks out of each other, but they haven't achieved their military objectives. And I think the cost of doing so and the realization of the, the cost that would have to be paid to, to try again to achieve those objectives has pushed them towards considering a negotiated settlement. And then there's other factors, you know, contextual factors, notably, obviously, the terrible conditions inside Tigray, which has suffered from the war and been isolated and effectively been blockaded by the federal government and its allies, and then Ethiopia's deteriorating economic situation, partly due to conflict, also global economic factors, and not just the conflict with Tigray and in the north, but also in, in Oromia, um, has also you know, created a very difficult economic situation. 30 million 
Ethiopians needing emergency assistance out of a population of 110 and the government you know, suffering some fairly serious sort of fiscal problems, debt problems, inflation as well. So I, I think that's also pushing um, the federal government into you know, trying to find a negotiated settlement. There's a need to restore its international partnerships and get funds flowing into the government from donors as well. So I think these are some of the factors that are pushing them towards these talks. So, of course, you, you talked about the de facto blockade of Tigray, which we've talked about a lot. First of all, what, what is the situation there in terms of the aid flow? We've obviously seen it increase. But then how much also is this a situation in which the humanitarian truce, if you will, has has led to, you know, opening of, of political space and, and, and possibly political talks? Well, what we've seen, particularly last month, is that although the main, most direct routes to Tigray from Addis through Amhara region are still closed, the route through Afar, we've seen a significant increase in the amount of trucks delivering aid to Tigray compared to previous months. Um, so I think this has done a couple of things. It's shown the Tigray leadership and the Tigray people that um, you know, one way to alleviate the terrible suffering inside Tigray would be to sort of continue to try and improve uh, relations with the federal government. So perhaps sort of incentivizing the peace process there. And also, you know, very much related, it's you know, what, what is often described as a, as a confidence building mechanism to try and restore some trust between the parties. Obviously, there was many allegations from the Tigrayan side. It was just a matter of subterfuge by the federal government. But then they've seen a massive increase in the volume of aid being delivered gives them more hope of the, the sincerity of the federal government's commitments. We should also note, I mean, overall, it's still a very mixed picture in Ethiopia. There's many challenges to this peace process, as we noted in our recent Q&A. And we should also note that, for example, you know, banking services have not been restored to Tigray. So the economy is still facing massive problems because of that. There is no uh, real trade connectivity with the rest of the, of the country. And in many ways, the blockade is, is still in place. People are still suffering terribly from shortages of food, medical services, cash, etc. So there has been a significant increase, but massive problems still remain in terms of humanitarian conditions. Mm. And even just talking about this, the, the degree to which the government has been able to utilize the humanitarian aid to help pressure the Tigray leadership um, is itself quite grim. So as you mentioned, uh, the peace talks look like they might be on their way, although a lot of uh, clarity is still needed about exactly where and, and by whom uh, in the mediation. But uh, looking ahead, when those peace talks and if those peace talks do kick off, what do we expect to be the major stumbling blocks? Obviously, peace talks don't mean that an actual agreement is right around the corner. Well, yes, I mean, I, th I think you know, maybe we'd expect to see continued progress in terms of humanitarian access, the restoration of, of services, uh, the idea was to move from a truce or a cessation of hostilities with forces frozen in place um, to sort of negotiations around a more permanent ceasefire involving the sort of repositioning of forces. So that might be something that's that's tackled initially. But the big obstacles come in the form of Western Tigray, which is still occupied. We still have the, the presence of, of Amhara and Eritrean forces there, and it's under Amhara administrative control. And this is an area which has always been part of Tigray during the federal era since the mid-1990s. And the Tigray leadership, the TPLF, the ruling party, is, is very clear that it's a non-negotiable demand 
for the return of Western Tigray to Tigray's administration. That's something fiercely opposed by Amhara's government, many Amhara other political actors. So a huge stumbling block there. And it's not, it's not clear how the federal government is going to approach that very contentious issue. I think other major obstacles come just by looking at the Tigrayan demands, as you know, pretty clearly stated recently by President Debrecion. And they also include that Tigray demands a referendum on secession from Ethiopia. So we have to see how the federal government responds to that. Uh, that is something which is constitutional for a regional state. If you have a regional government which is recognized as legitimate by the federal government, those are not the conditions we currently have. And then there's also the issue of Tigray's forces, um, which have been built up to defend Tigray um, as an anti-genocidal force, as, as Tigrayans often have been known to refer to it. Um, they've obviously caused a lot of, not just defended Tigray, but also caused a lot of damage in Afar and Amhara and threatened the federal government. So on the one hand, the Tigrayans see that force as non-negotiable to ensure the future security of Tigray. Um, the federal government and, and its allies, very much including regional partners, see that force as threatening. So therefore, how will it be handled? It's, it's hard to imagine the, the Tigray leadership, for example, agreeing to the downsizing of that force to any significant degree. Mm. And given how these sorts of issues have been dealt with in other uh, peace agreements in the region, I think we can we can definitely see the sort of challenges that are going to be ahead, not just in talks, but also if they if they do reach an agreement in sort of the implementation uh, moving ahead. Now, obviously, we're discussing bilateral talks between the federal government and and the Tigray leadership. Um, but as you mentioned, there are other conflicts going on in Ethiopia, which we'll get to um, in just a second, but also there are other parties to uh, the conflict in Tigray, including Amhara forces, as well as Eritrea and others. So how do we see this playing out in terms of resolving a conflict with, with many actors, but through a peace process that at least initially looks like it'll, it'll basically include just the two main protagonists? Well, as, as you know, it's a complex picture. There's a, there's a, certain, a certain amount of fragmentation across the, the country and even within the different factions. And you know, with regards to um, Amhara, for example, I mean, I think, yes, we had a concern that you know, if these parties weren't included, then you don't have a sort of, you know, uh, don't have necessarily a comprehensive peace process. But uh, Prime Minister Abiy and his, you know, his officials, they've named a negotiating team, which has his deputy, Demarco McConnell and Amhara, political figure leading it also has other leading Amhara figures. Yes, federal politicians, but also there's a representative from the regional government, the deputy president of Amhara. They are part of a sort of seven-member negotiating team. So it does look like Amhara's interests will be represented there. Obviously, that could also present a, a problem in terms of reaching compromise with Tigray, particularly over the issue of of Western Tigray. And I think more generally, um, you know, obviously, this peace process is massively welcome, given what's gone before. Um, and I think it's reasonable to be quite limited in the ambitions initially. So to get to a point where the federal forces and the Tigray forces are further and further away um, from going back to war, I think that really is the initial step here. So the fact that it's sort of formally bilateral is not a massive problem at this stage. But you know, if we're going to see a resolution to these problems between Amhara and Tigray, between the TPLF and President Azaias' government, etc., then at some point the, pro the, the peace process will have to be widened and it will have to be deepened. Um, whether that's in the form of bringing other actors into this bilateral process or 
this bilateral process becoming part of the national dialogue um, to discuss issues collectively and comprehensively, that's still yet to be seen. But I think because of the situation, a sort of incremental approach to things is looks like you know, at least a reasonably pragmatic one at this stage. You mentioned that one of the uh, driving factors, besides the logic of, of a war that's unwinnable, one of the driving factors on Abi Ahmed's side might be the deteriorating economic situation in Ethiopia, which is indeed quite worrying. We've seen uh, Ethiopia's major donors, which sort of at the beginning of the conflict largely uh, halted development aid uh, budget support to Ethiopia. We, we, we've seen some of that development funding kicking back off. What does that landscape look like? And, and do we have any concerns about aid that Ethiopia obviously needs, but also within this complex environment of making sure the parties are incentivized to keep moving uh, towards peace? Well, again, you know, it's a messy, a messy picture. You know, we don't see Ethiopia's external actors, you know, acting as one. Although generally, you know, they they've, they've pushed in the right direction. Um, but we see, you know, different so different levels of of reengagement. Let's say, um, and I really think that the the World Bank is is quite a long way ahead of other Ethiopia's other bilateral and multilateral partners here. You know, they've got programs you're worth uh, over sort of two billion dollars lined up for approval this year. A bunch of them have already been approved. That's quite a significant, that's a very significant resumption of development assistance. That's you know, large amounts of, of foreign exchange coming into the country. You know, Ethiopia only earns about $3 billion a year, um, a little bit more recently from, from goods exports, for example. So there's very significant uh, re-engagement from the World Bank. Generally, we also see momentum in that direction, whether it's from Brussels or or Paris, also in DC, where I think there's a you know, there's a more diversity of opinion, but I think we also see a momentum towards re-engagement there. Clearly, you know, a lot of this is very understandable given the massive humanitarian needs, but also the desire to, you know, to get Ethiopia uh, back on a more stable economic path, and that is a you know, primary concern of these donors. Um, a bunch of these, you know, the US and allied donors, are also worried. I'm not sure how justifiably about sort of losing out to their geopolitical rivals, particularly Russia, um, should they continue to isolate Addis. So that's a factor in, in their considerations. What we are worried about is that because it seems one of the primary justifications for pivoting towards a peace process from the federal government is a need to get donor funds flowing uh, to resuscitate the economy, we worry that this might happen too quickly and that Really, partners need to ensure that they're incentivizing uh, progress towards peace, tangible progress towards peace, um, and and re- and reengaging at the right time when it looks like um, the, you know, the federal government and and other actors, obviously including Tigray's leadership, is decisively moving away from war. It doesn't necessarily look like the balance is is quite right there, but you know, from speaking to from diplomats from various entities, it's also clear that they're fully aware of the of the sort of dilemma and, and, and the sort of potential pitfall there. So, so let's turn uh, briefly to Oromia. Of course, we've been talking about the conflict uh, in Tigray mostly, but Ethiopia's problems are not isolated uh, to there. We've seen quite a surge of violence relating to the uh, OLA. Um, I'm just wondering if you can just update us on the situation there and how we're, how we're thinking about this conflict. Sure. I mean, just to, for the listeners, the, the OLA is the Oromo Liberation Army. Uh, this is essentially an Oromo nationalist rebel group 
um, that's grown in strength during this very troubled transition since 2018, uh, particularly after the sort of mainstream Oromo parties um, found themselves or shut out of the electoral process as they see it amid political repression. We have essentially seen a rebellion that has strengthened. It doesn't seem necessarily that it really presents a threat to state authority, for example, in the, in the manner that the Tigray forces did. But you know, the OLA and, and, and the Tigray leadership did ally at the, at towards the end of last year, although it doesn't seem to be that strong an alliance. Um, but essentially what we have is a, you know, a, a rebel group which is in control of rural areas and despite um, numerous um, offensives by the, the federal military and regional security forces to completely degrade the OLA, they've remained resilient. Um, they really showed their teeth recently with attacks on two towns in Western Oromia, um, on the security forces there, they say, and a neighboring Gambella town as well with an allied re- sort of new, newish insurgency. That you know, is evidence that they are still um, a massive problem. Uh, we've also had continued reports of the mass killings of civilians, particularly Amhara civilians in Oromia, um, with the OLA being blamed by the government and, and others and, and the OLA saying that they're not responsible. Um, so essentially, you know, it's another massive security threat, uh, making life miserable uh, for civilians in, in large swathes of Oromia. It seems to us that because this insurgency and therefore the conflict has political roots, uh, relating to the you know, the failure for Oromo nationalist parties to to compete in an in an in an election. Well, you know, that's one one way of describing it. That there needs to be a political resolution to this. But at the moment, we just see continued efforts by the federal military and the regional government to try and crush the OLA, and we still see very sort of belligerent, uncompromising rhetoric. So we, 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 there's no there's no prospect of peace talks visible at the moment. But it also seems to follow a sort of broadly similar trajectory, perhaps, to the Tigray conflict, um, where there's these efforts um, and sort of maximalist um, approaches from both sides. And then as things get entrenched, um, perhaps things will will gradually edge edge towards negotiations. Thanks for the update. And of course, uh, we'll be watching this very closely. And to listeners, we've we've written on much of this and uh, we'll be writing about much more of this uh, in the future. Thanks, William, for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Alan. Next, we're going to turn to Nelika, who is our director of our Great Lakes project. Nelika, uh, welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Alan. So earlier, we talked with William discussing Kenya as a possible mediator in in Ethiopia. But already this year, Kenya has stepped in to play another regional mediator role in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. So we wanted to discuss that with you quickly, since we we haven't had a chance to yet uh, this season. So we have the DRC joining uh, the East African community. We have Kenya playing host um, as a mediator in, in, in initial peace talks and, and Kenya calling for a regional deployment um, through the East African standby force in in the Eastern DRC. Um, I'm just wondering if you can help unpack the flurry of moves this year. Um, how did Nairobi end up turning westward and, and jumping into what's already quite a regional fray in Eastern Congo? Yeah, thanks, Alan. I think these are all fair questions. But I, but I have to say that Kenya's focus on the Democratic Republic of Congo is actually not new. 
It was in fact here in Nairobi that President Chisekedi announced his candidacy for the presidential elections in the DRC in 2018. And I think it was because of Raila Odinga who introduced Chisekedi to President Kenyatta. Um, Odinga knew uh, Chisekedi's father, H.N. Chisekedi, well. They were both main opposition leaders in the region. They are more or less of the same generation. And apparently Odinga then introduced Chisekedi to Kenyatta. And Kenyatta decided to finance Chisekedi's 2018 electoral campaign. It was actually, President Kenyatta was actually the only head of state that attended Chisekedi's inauguration ceremony in January 2019 when he assumed office. And Raila Odinga was also present. And I think it was after Chisekedi came into power that the ties between the two countries, so between the DRC and Kenya, started to intensify even more. I think it's mostly motivated by economic interests. We saw that Chisekedi came to Nairobi right after assuming office. We saw Kenya visiting the DRC in April 2021, which was actually his first ever state visit to the DRC. Kenyatta then signed some agreements with Chisekedi, mostly to boost trade between the two countries. We also saw that the Kenyan bank, Equity Bank, took over an important bank in the DRC, BCDC. So we already see that the ties at the economic level between Chisekedi and Kenyatta have started to grow since 2018, 2019. But apart from that, I, I think I can also add that there have been closer cooperation at the security level. We know that Kenya has been providing troops to the Force Intervention Brigade of MONUSCO, which is the UN peacekeeping mission in the Eastern DRC. This force mostly targets the ADF, which is a Ugandan-born rebel movement, but it has been active in Eastern DRC for 20-25 years, and it has sworn allegiance to Islamic State. We've seen the links between IS and uh, ADF becoming more visible, over the past few years. And I think that's also the main reason why Kenya would be interested in uh, providing troops to fight this specific group. We've seen a network emerge in East Africa. We've seen Kenyans joining ADF. We know that there has been some money flowing from Nairobi to the ADF. So I think maybe out of fear for the rebel group, Kenya also decided to provide troops to, to fight the group in eastern DRC. Can you tell us more about the talks that have taken place in Nairobi? Does it look like a serious uh, mediation attempt? Does it look like they will continue? Can you just give listeners a bit more information on that? I think that Kenyatta, President Kenyatta, has stepped up in recent weeks uh, because he is currently uh, the chair of the East African community. And with the DRC joining the East African community, I think he saw another opportunity to play a bigger role in, in the DRC. He indeed stepped up as a mediator. There have been talks in Nairobi um, between the Congolese authorities and several armed groups active in Eastern DRC. A first round of talks took place at the end of April here in Nairobi. But I have to say these talks were very hastily organized. They were not that well put together. There were about 18 armed groups that attended, whereas there are more than 120 rebel groups active in Eastern DRC. 
So observers questioned a little bit why those specific groups were invited, especially because the main groups, uh, the most active and the most violent ones, did not attend the peace talks. And the peace talks or the peace process started because the M23 rebel group became more active in Eastern DRC. Uh, that is a big militia that, was, uh, that emerged in 2012, 2013, was then defeated and was dormant for about a decade, but re-emerged in November 2021. And because of this group, the attacks that it conducted against uh, the Congolese army and its request for negotiations with the Congolese authorities, talks in Nairobi were set up. But we saw that because M23 continued its activities on the ground, despite also entering the peace talks, they were soon excluded from the talks by the Congolese authorities. But there was no agreement reached and the rebel groups basically returned to the bush uh, without much to show for. But then we've heard a lot of rumors that there will be a second round of talks to be held again in Nairobi. But the exact date is unknown and it seems that they are being pushed back a little bit. This time around, the Congolese authorities seem to be more serious in organizing the talks. They have consulted with communities, with rebel groups. They, I think they met with about 50 rebel groups in uh, the provinces most affected by violence. But the fact that the DRC designated M23 as a terrorist organization basically meant that they excluded the group from further talks. So it's, to be honest, it's unclear what will happen now, and it doesn't seem to be the right timing to bring all rebel groups to Nairobi again. Mm. It's also fascinating how we keep seeing states in the region increasingly using the terrorism designation as, as a way of sort of uh, preempting even talk of, of, of peace talks. We, we, we see that used more and more. Um, so besides the talks, Kenyatta is uh, pushing for a deployment of the East African Standby Force which to my knowledge hasn't actually been deployed uh, before. So who would compose this force um, and, and what's the thinking behind it? A lot of it is still unknown, uh, but we have seen the concept of operations of the regional joint force. And it seems that all countries of the East African community will contribute troops to the regional joint force, except for Rwanda, because the DRC doesn't want Rwanda to participate because it believes that Rwanda is currently supporting M23. So it doesn't want Rwandan forces on Congolese soil, while at the same time the country is allegedly backing M23 rebels. But apart from that, all other countries seem to be willing to provide troops. The regional joint force will be under Kenyan command. So I think that's also interesting. Uh, it shows that uh, Kenya really has is committing itself to the process in Eastern DRC. We know that uh, Tanzania and Burundi are a bit more reluctant to provide troops, but will likely deploy forces to South Kivu uh, to fight Retabara and RNC, two, two rebel groups active there. Uh, the Kenyans that will provide most of the forces or the biggest, uh, the biggest contingent of forces to the, uh, to the regional joint force will likely fight in North Kivu uh, against the FDLR. Then we have the Ugandans that will also continue 
the Ugandans are actually already on Congolese soil fighting uh, ADF. They will likely continue those operations, but then perhaps under the command of the regional joint force. And there's also South Sudan, which I think is, is interesting. Uh, that will also provide a small number of groups to target what is left of the LRA uh, in uh, Ouele province and Ituri province in, in eastern DRC. And when you look at those CONOPs, it, um, it shows that the force could be between 6,000 and 12,000 uh, forces, which is, uh, which is quite big if you consider that the UN operation is also about 12,000 military personnel. I think that also brings in a lot of questions. How will this regional joint force operate alongside MONUSCO? When will it be deployed exactly? Uh, according to the CONOPS, it has a six-month six month mandate, but what will happen after that? Is there a clear exit strategy? These kind of questions, and, and we took them up as well with military advisors close to President Kenyatta, who have said that it is likely that the force um, will not be deployed before there's a new president in office, because that will be the new chief in command. So he will need to uh, sign off on uh, sending troops across the border to fight those rebel groups. So even though it seems as if deployment is imminent, I don't think they will be, there will be boots on the ground in Eastern DRC uh, very soon. So let, let's see. Yeah, fascinating. Um, we will talk about the, the impact of Kenyan elections on all this, which of course is a, is a huge factor um, in just a second. But about this, this uh, standby force, first of all, does it look likely that this would be a way of basically providing all these different uh, militaries in the region a, a sort of mandate to pursue these operations in Congo uh, rather than it looking like a sort of unified force? Um, I mean, we've seen in Somalia, for instance, where, you know, it, a lot of regional forces were often sort of hatted with Amazon before, of course, it was changed to Atmos. Does it seem plausible that this would be a a unified force or, or basically a way of many of the countries in the region sort of uh, going into the region under under the umbrella of the East African standby force? Yeah, to me, it seems like this regional joint force could formalize more or less a situation that is already present. So you already have the Ugandans in country. You already have the Kenyans and the Tanzanians contributing to uh, the FIB of MONUSCO. You have Burundian forces present in, in South Kivu. So it, it seems as if this regional joint force would bring all this together under central command, so under Kenyan command, who will likely be assisted by a uh, Congolese and a Burundian military official as well. But it doesn't seem to be a, really a regional army that will fight rebel groups active in eastern DRC, no. It's a, it's a, a remarkable invitation from uh, the Congolese, too, I think, to, to have so many um, regional countries within their sovereign space and with them not even leading operations. Is it clear who would fund these operations? No, it's not completely clear. It seems as if all the regional countries would need to provide the financial means themselves. But I also understood from people that we spoke to that um, there might be a need for additional, for additional funding, but that would acquire, for instance, approval from the UN Security Council, which would complicate matters even more because the MONUSCO force is already present in Eastern DRC. 
So it is unclear whether the Security Council would approve a parallel force uh, while at the same time having already a UN force in country. That is also why I, I doubt whether the force will be in country anytime soon. These questions haven't been fully addressed. Lots of questions to still be answered, and of course we'll be following all those closely. So obviously the DRC has been a regional conundrum uh, for a very long time. Do you think adding Kenya as a more active regional actor brings us any closer towards possibly resolving some of the instability there? And and finally, Kenya is obviously heading towards elections in August. You've mentioned this. Kenyatta, the incumbent, will not be staying on. You mentioned Raila's role um, Raila Odinga's role uh, possibly in these series of events leading towards Kenya getting involved. But of course, Raila may or may not win uh, the elections in August, which you would assume would put a question mark on all this. So so assessing Kenya's role moving forward, how do we how do we do that given all this? I'm not sure whether Kenya's involvement will really help in stabilizing the Eastern DRC. I do think that the country has slightly different interests than, for instance, um, the other Congolese neighbors, such as Uganda and Rwanda, those countries have often intervened, not necessarily with the best interests of the Congolese in mind, but also because of its own um, political econ- economic interests, a lot of uh, interest in uh, the gold reserves in Eastern DRC. These two countries have often fought their proxy wars on Congolese soil. But it seems that for Kenya, its motivation is slightly different. Uh, It is mostly motivated, as I already mentioned, by economic reasons. I think Kenya is looking to diversify its markets a little bit. And of course, Eastern DRC, and in particular because the country joined the East African community, offers Kenya a big Swahili phone market. Uh, So it doesn't need to change any packages on products, so it can just export products to Eastern DRC. Um, And in that sense, Kenya will benefit more from a stable, prosperous Eastern DRC, whereas I think Uganda, Burundi and and Rwanda often also benefit slightly from the chaotic situation in, in Eastern DRC. By bringing in Kenya into the mix, it does bring another country to a region where you already see a lot of countries involved. We've already heard rumors that Kenya might also be interested in in the DRC's gold reserves. For now, it also seems as if Kenyatta is getting along with all the regional leaders, but we do know that there are some tensions with Rwanda, for instance, also because Rwanda considers itself the traditional partner of the DRC. It considers Eastern DRC as its main sphere of influence. So it's unclear whether President Paul Kagame of Rwanda will accept Kenyatta's interference. In the 2018 elections, Kenyatta supported Chisekedi, but Kagame was more in favor of Martin Fayulu. So there you already see that they had diverging interests. You rightly mention uh, the Kenyan elections. It could have an impact on the country's role in Eastern DRC. We've heard that, or word has it, that President Kenyatta will be appointed as Kenya's special envoy for the Great Lakes region when he steps down. That could be an interesting element because it could mean that he could dedicate most of his time to new mediation efforts or new peace talks in, uh, in Nairobi that could potentially have a positive impact on the situation in the East. If Odinga is elected, I think he would 
continue along the lines that Kenyatta has already laid out, also because of his connections to, um, to President Chisekedi and his father. Uh, if um, Ruto wins, however, it could change uh, a bit because uh, Ruto apparently has closer connections to closer business ties to Ugandan President Yoweri Museveni. So I'm not sure whether he will continue to pursue for peace in Eastern DRC. And Ruto is also less popular in Eastern DRC, especially after a video that came out recently in which he mocked the Congolese population uh, and insulted them quite a bit. So I think it depends on who wins the elections, definitely, and whether Kenyatta will indeed take up a more active role after he steps down as Kenya's president. Mm. Th- thanks, Nalika. Um, and of course, it's, I think, hard to foresee Ruto um, appointing Kenyatta, who's campaigning against him, um, <laughs> as a as a special envoy on uh, on the Great Lakes. But this is this is fascinating. This is now two examples in the region between Ethiopia and the Democratic Republic of Congo, where we do see Kenya really stepping up its its role in uh, peace and security um, in the broader region, which we'll continue to watch closely. So thank you, Nalika, for for coming on. Okay, you're welcome. Thanks, Alan. Okay, now we are going to switch gears slightly and speak to my colleague Nazanin Moshiri. We've brought on Nazanin, who is our climate and security senior analyst for Africa, to look ahead at what the next few months may look like for the Horn, which is experiencing its worst drought in decades. Nazanin, welcome back to the show. Sure, thanks so much, Alan. So, Nazanin, drought is here. The Horn has experienced a couple years now of failed rains already, and we're seeing projections for a fifth failed rainy season in a row later this year. As we'll no doubt talk about, these kind of climate shocks are reverberating across the region. They risk causing not only famine, but also flooding in some other regions, as well as conflicts over resources. I'm just wondering if you can walk us through what we're seeing the Horn of Africa facing right now, and also over the rest of the year in terms of these climate shocks. Yes, as you mentioned there, uh, the Horn of Africa, and specifically the eastern part of the Horn of Africa, so uh, northern Kenya, parts of Somalia, uh, Ethiopia is facing its its worst drought in more than four decades. So the last long rainy season, which, which was between March and May this year, this was the driest on record in the last 70 years. So what we're seeing over the, over the last two years, so since 2020, basically, the drought has, has surpassed the horrific droughts in, in 2010, 2011, and that drought was pretty bad. And then again, there was another drought in 2016 and 2017. So this current drought has surpassed those droughts in both duration and also uh, severity. And as you mentioned there, what's really concerning is that early forecasts, these are very accurate forecasts from meteorological agencies, climate warning hazard agencies in the US, also humanitarian agencies, all warning together that there is a high likelihood that the October-December rains, that's the short rainy seasons in the Eastern Horn, are also likely to fail. So so where are these specific areas that are likely to get hit uh, the hardest? The hotspots and, and the regions that have been worse affected, I would say, are the arid and semi-arid regions of Kenya, central and southern Somalia. In particular, uh, we are really concerned about the Bay region uh, in Somalia. And of course, Somalia is facing uh, not just 
uh, climate change, uh, which is leading to, you know, increased likelihood uh, of prolonged droughts, but also conflict um, and also a spike in, in food prices as well. So in Somalia, we're really concerned because I think around 200,000 people in eight parts of the country are at risk of famine, of famine at the moment. Um, we're also very concerned about Ethiopia as well. Um, we've seen that the drought there has worsened and expanded, particularly in the southern and eastern parts of the country. Um, and we're at the same time, we're seeing heavy rains as well and flooding. Of course, what we know about um, the impact of these climate stresses on the region is it doesn't just create more prolonged droughts. It also leads to floods in parts of the Horn, particularly in South Sudan, for example. But also uh, we're seeing heavy rains in northern and western parts of Ethiopia, which uh, is causing flooding and damage to houses and infrastructure. Uh, and also, you know, worsening the situation there, which is already pretty insecure and violent. Uh, and we're seeing a lot of displacement due to both the drought and flooding uh, in Ethiopia. Mm. This is all quite scary stuff um, and harkens back to some of the uh, uh, the most perilous moments uh, for the Horn of Africa um, in, in, in recent decades. Um, a- as you mentioned, this is, of course, happening at the same time as the global commodity shocks in food and, and fuel and fertilizer, um, as, as well as uh, inflation in many of the, the countries in the region that we cover. Um, I'm just wondering, on the commodity shocks, um, if you can just talk a bit about that in terms of inflation and hunger crisis, um, etc., that a lot of the region is now facing. Sure. I mean, when I was just up at the Northern Great Rift Valley in Kenya, uh, herders there were facing a double whammy, not just the fact that their livestock had been decimated and the livestock that remained was you know, cut in, 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 in price, but also just next door in the markets, the price of maize, which is a staple food here in Kenya, has, has risen by two or three times. Um, now, that's a combination, I would say, of the impact of the war in Ukraine, of course. We've seen you know, much of the world's grains and fertilizer flow from Russia, Ukraine and Belarus, sunflower oil too. But also, I would say it's also a, an impact of the uncertainty about the duration and the scope of the sanctions, which are currently on Russia. I think a lot of countries in the region and beyond are basically stockpiling goods and stockpiling food, which has risen the cost of those food uh, stocks. We've also seen high global energy prices. So basically, it's more expensive to produce and transport food to this region. Uh, And humanitarian aid groups have told me that they're struggling to deliver assistance to these drought and flood hit regions in the Horn, because this kind of inflation or or prices or hikes in, in food and in in um, you know oil prices etc has stretched their own budgets. So just giving you an example, in Somalia right now, um, food prices have gone up by more than a hundred percent. And particularly, you know, red sorghum in Somalia is a staple food, and the the cost of red sorghum in Somalia has exceeded what we saw uh, during the twenty eleven famine. So that's really extremely worrying. So we see that the Horn of Africa, you know, is is very much at the front lines of, of these climate shocks, as well as these commodity shocks. Um, and then meanwhile, as you mentioned, and as we mostly talk about on this podcast, uh, much of the region, of course, is, is facing various forms of political turmoil and conflict. And these are all, uh, we fear, uh, starting to intermix. So 
we're watching closely to see how these climate shocks might play into some of the conflicts um, and politics we see around the region. I'm just wondering, where are we watching uh, most closely? And, and, and what do we know uh, so far about how these, these, uh, these various factors might play into each other and amplify each other? Sure, we know that the links between these kinds of climate stresses, such as drought and floods, um, and they link to conflict, is really complex and context-specific. But we also know that when uh, people are impacted by these kinds of uh, shocks, they're forced to leave their homes. So, for example, in South Sudan, we have seen people being displaced uh, in large numbers from the flooded areas of the country in Zhonglei to central and eastern Equatoria region, and there has been a spike in violence there. But generally across the Horn, I would say the figures show that around more than a million people have left their homes searching for food, pasture, water, any kind of alternative livelihoods they can find, mainly in camps for the displaced. And as we've seen time and time again, this increases the risk of intercommunal conflict and also puts pressure, particularly in urban areas, uh, on already limited and stretched basic services. Mm. Thanks, Nazanin. And to listeners, a lot of this research will be uh, coming out in the coming months um, from Crisis Group. You were just in Laikipia in Kenya, which which you mentioned uh, very much, you know, at the front lines um, of this intersection of, of, of drought and resource competition, uh, but also now because of the calendar, as you mentioned, the political contestation that we see, you know, ahead of elections. We're still working um, on some of our findings, but initially, um, how have you found that the stresses caused by the drought is is playing into the politics, and how is the politics playing into how communities are responding to the drought? Sure. I mean, the drivers of, of intercommunal conflict in these areas, and particularly in the Laikipa area, are really multifaceted. Um, and relate to historical grievances, land issues, the readily available illicit arms and ammunition that are flowing into those regions. But I would say, speaking to many people in that region, that the climate stresses, this prolonged drought, um, is definitely compounding the situation. I mean, I spoke to herders and farmers and conservancy owners who told me that they've never seen anything like this. They haven't seen good rains in more than two years. And this, of course, leads to people moving further and further away from their homes in search of, of pasture, well-watered well, uh, pasture. And that is bound to create tension and create this kind of this conflict and this spark for conflict. Um, that we've seen in parts of Laikipia, uh, in the Baringo region as well, and Isiolo, Marsabit, other parts of this arid and semi-arid part of Kenya. Of course, it's very, very complex, and, and we are uh, still sort of investigating these links. But I would also say, from, from speaking to communities there, that this is a particularly difficult year because of the election in August. And what we are seeing as well is that certain political elites are definitely contributing to the problem by inciting populations, perhaps even arming them. That's what they've been accused of. And that is definitely a major factor when it comes to this kind of intercommunal conflict. Thank you very much, Nazanin. And and, uh, good luck with your research. We look forward to discussing this much more on the podcast. And thank you for this update. Thanks so much, Alan. 
Thanks to all our guests today, and thanks to you, our audience, most of all, for listening once again this season. You can find me on Twitter, at Alan Boswell. We'd love to hear from you about what you liked or didn't about the season and what you'd like to hear more of from us in the future. If you'd like to send feedback by email, you can reach us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. We'll put that info in the show notes as well. As always, our producers are Mae Francis and Ida Holly Nambi. I'd also like to thank my colleagues Alyssa Jobson and Nicola Delani, who stepped in to keep the show running while I was on paternity leave. Our new president and CEO, Comfort Arrow, and Africa director, Marithi Mutiga, for their support and direction, Finn Johnson and the podcast team in Brussels for making sure we get this out mostly on time, and of course, all of our guests who gave us their time and insights this season. We'll be back in September with our regular programming. Take care.